Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28. And the last time, the last uh, chapter, we covered the crucifixion. And so the crucifixion. It's more important what Christ did on the cross than that he was on the cross. Some don't understand the whole concept of the cross. Uh, What I find fascinating is after Christ died for our sins, after he completed that, and these big words come in, substitutionary death, atonement, propitiation. And all it just means is that we have sinned as human beings. We've turned away from God, and uh, God sent his son to die for our sins so that we could believe in that sacrifice and have everlasting life. Uh, So this is what happened on the cross. It's complex yet simple. Today, we're going to look at the resurrection, which is really the proof of the culmination of Christ's teachings and promises while he was on the earth. You know that Christ, remember, everyone, you know, the religious leaders saw him on the cross and they they mocked him. The uh, disciples fled. So who would have ever believed that he actually did this for us on the cross, except for the fact that he rose again? In that day, nobody had seen anything like that. So for him to say, I'm going to rise again, and in the resurrection, that proves and puts that seal of authenticity that what he did on the cross was in fact real and actual. Now, Dr. Norman Geisler took a poll, and I've covered this poll before, of the evangelical, the ones who are supposed to be reading their Bibles, theological society, and found that 11%, and the number's growing, believe in some type of neo-orthodoxy, or meaning that Jesus did not bodily resurrect. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I don't care if they wear a hat, hold a staff, have a collar, wear robes, any kind of fancy religious vestments. If, if, it, if resurrection is a negotiable tenet of that organization, it is not Christian. We're going to look at that. Verse 1, chapter 28, it says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now, Mark's gospel adds that the ladies brought spices to the tomb. What does that tell you? They don't think that he rose from the dead. Because you don't take spices to someone who's alive. You, will, you anoint a body. So just by their actions, it tells us you don't, you don't anoint a live person. Right? Now, they were acting as if they didn't believe that he would rise from the dead. But at least they did more than the men. The men were kind of huddled together and um, fearful of the religious leaders. And, you know, this, this, was, this was the picture of Christ's followers at the time. Verse 2, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. If you would, turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. I'm going to go and really paint this picture for you as the different disciples focus on things uh, from their perspective. 
And as we put it all together, we get a nice picture painted for us. So Luke 24, starting in verse 4. It says, And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Remember, this is Dr. Luke. He's very meticulous. He's very uh, exact. And from their perspective, they looked like men, but they were shining. And we know from the context that they were angels. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself what had happened. So the words seemed like idle tales. They didn't believe. Peter runs to the tomb and marvels. Well, this is amazing because this is the A-team of followers, right? This is the best of the best, the cream of the crop. And look at their attitudes towards what's going on here. They didn't believe the women. Now... I've always said that behavior follows belief. You show me somebody who says they believe something, but their behavior can tell them something different. Actions speak louder than words. If the followers of Christ really believed he rose from the dead or he was going to keep his promise, they would have got there Saturday night, got themselves some sleeping bags away from the guards so they didn't get in trouble. They would have got up early in the morning, got out their lawn chairs, had some coffee, and said, this is going to be good, right? Any minute now, but that's not what happened. Up until this point, if you take the Gospels together, we have a disjointed account of fear, marveling, and disbelief. Now, if you came here this morning and you're struggling in some way, be encouraged. Because the A-team of followers of Christ, in the beginning, struggled as well. It's kind of like the human condition. Their behavior was a reflection of their faith. And someone today may be struggling. You know, right now you may feel, wow, I, I can really relate to that. I'm having a hard time. Well, I just would ask you to sit back and let the word encourage you and refresh you today as we get into this. Let's go to John chapter 20. John's gospel, chapter 20. Starting with verse 1. On the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, whom Jesus loved, uh, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other outran, disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. 
Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. This gets a little bit confusing from our perspective, but you know, if you read the four Gospels and you really, really dig into it, you can start putting the pieces together and see what came first. But what you have is this back and forth. Right? The women are there first. Uh, the women go to talk to the disciples. Christ uh, ends up on the Emmaus Road and uh, is, is having a conversation, the resurrected Christ, and walking with two of these disciples. Right? He comes back. He runs into the ten disciples. And then, well, you know, of course, Judas is gone, and Peter, Thomas, is not there. Then he comes back when Thomas is there. So he goes back to the 11 disciples. So you see a lot of this. He ends up in Galilee. Uh, he reminds them about how to catch fish. And you see kind of like that cycle happen all over again. But, you know, we have to try to make head or tail of this. But John, for some reason, makes a big deal about the tomb and the grave cloths. Why does he make a big deal? Well, the answer really is in the Greek translation. We see that Peter saw... The other disciples saw and saw and believed. Three words for see, but three different Greek words. They're correctly translated into see, but there's some nuances into those words. So as we go into this, what we see is that Peter sees. In the Greek, it's theore, where we get the word theorize from. He's looking in there, and he's theorizing. He's investigating. He sees this weird uh, positioning of the grave clothes, and he sees that the head portion, the handkerchief or the, uh, the towel that was, goes over the head was kind of wrung or folded and put in one place, and the cloths of the body were outstretched, according to the Greek, and put something else. So he's marveling at this. He's, he's amazed. You know, the one disciple gets to the, the tomb first, looks in, but doesn't go in. Peter goes in, and then he goes in. So we're getting clued into something that's happening here. The other disciple sees, in Greek, he blepe. He just had there's an image that goes into his, the organ of his eye and goes down the optic nerve and into his brain. And then he sees again and believes, but this is a different word, it's ide. Well, what he's seeing the second time as he looks further is the form. He again also is marveling about this form. So much detail here. As if Jesus was saying to them, hey guys, it's a clue. It's not a grave robber. That was the first thought. That was the thing that was uh, carried through the centuries to the non-believers. But he's saying, clue, guys, everything I do is meticulous. He took off the kerchief. He put it aside for whatever reason. He took off the, he, I don't know if he passed through the grave clothes, and he puts them on the side as well. A grave robber wouldn't have time to do this. He'd be doing it in the dark. And then we have the problem with the Roman guard. How did he get in there? How did he move the stone away? So it wasn't a grave robber, guys. I'm giving you a clue into what I did. I told you I was coming back. Now, if we take all four Gospels together, we see something about the resurrected Jesus and his form. He's able to pass through the tomb prior to the stone being rolled away. He's able to pass through walls as he goes into the room with the disciples while they have the doors shut, and then all of a sudden he's in the middle of them. You know, I'm sure they had a little bit of adrenaline uh, shot once in a while with he, he just appearing like that. It does appear in the Emmaus Travelers in, Luke 20, or in Luke's Gospel that he may have even ate with them and he was able to be held. So it's very fascinating. He can do pretty much anything in his resurrected form. Now, his followers held, held his feet and worshipped him. And in John's Gospel, I love this, she thinks Jesus at first is the gardener. She's also in a state of disbelief. And then he must say Mary in a certain way that he said prior to his death, 
And she says, Rabboni. And she clings to him. I could just picture her with a kung fu grip grabbing him and locking her arms around him as if to say, they took him from you the first time. I'm not letting you get away again. And he says, Mary, don't cling to me. Because I have things I have to do. You know? But she wouldn't want to let him go. And I'll tell you what, we would do well to uh, follow in her footsteps because, you know, we need him. And when they were without him, they realized how much trouble they had. And they wanted him again. Now, this is a good insight as well into our glorified and resurrected body. You know, we don't, churches don't speak about that that much. We don't speak about the afterlife. We don't speak about his coming kingdom, but it's there. I want to read to you 1 John 3, 2. It's just one verse. The disciple John says, Beloved, writing to other believers to encourage them, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's a problem, there's a chasm. Even though Christ died for our sins, we we have everlasting life upon the Lord coming for us or death. However, in our sinful state, there's still an issue with us seeing him in all his glory. There's a full redemption that's coming. But we will be as he is, not God, that's not what he's saying, but in a different form. And 1 Corinthians covers that as well. It's fascinating. There's a great book uh, called Heaven that Randy Alcorn put together, a whole bunch of scriptures. And boy, it's a thick book. He speaks about what travel will be like. We won't need uh, you know, the Bernoulli effect and, and airplanes and stuff like that. We would just be able to go from one place to another. He talks about pleasure. He talks about uh, the tangible you know, and that, that whole idea of, and many of you have seen the, the pictures, there was this, I think it's the third, fourth century, this idea of Christoplatonism, where everything's platonic and we're just kind of, we have no form and we're just in heaven and we kind of blend in with the clouds and we can play and strum a harp once in a while. That's not a picture of the resurrected life. That's boring, you know. Uh, God, it's just amazing. We really need to trust him because the best things that we think we're experiencing in this life will pair in comparison to us in the resurrected life. So Jesus gives us a clue. He shows us what he's like, and also the Bible clues us in, in some ways, to what we will be like as well. Now in verse 10, let's go back to Matthew 28. In verse 10, he says, in reference to the disciples, go and tell my brethren. Go and tell my brethren. Weren't these the guys that denied him, that abandoned him, and he's calling them his brethren? That's pretty impressive. Are they worthy of that? Are we worthy of what John says in, in one twelve that we become children of God just by believing in his name? Probably not. But see, God put a lot of care in creating us. He loves us. And yes, we mess up, we sin, but he still loves us. Right? This is this perfect love. And... Um, you know, he sees us for what we can be, right? He can look at you, and or you can look at you, and you may be a lump of clay as he sees you. But over time, he sees the beautiful sculpture, painted, perfected. Now, it comes with some difficulties, right? If you're that lump of clay, and he's chipping rough edges off you, boy, that hurts. I was doing the children's ministry devotion downstairs, speaking about John 15, where Jesus likens our growth process with pruning a tree. If a tree could talk, what would it say every time you took out those scissors? Oh, no, here she comes again (laughs) with the pruning shears. That hurts. Sure, it hurts. But he perfects us so we can bear more fruit. 
That's the beauty of what God, God does in our life. I find myself having this conversation many times with when we look in the mirror, we see something. Maybe we don't like it. But look into God's word and then look into the mirror and smile. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. It is amazing how he can hear all of us at the same time corporately, but he can also have a relationship with us individually. So I want that to lift you up this morning, this morning as well. Going back to Matthew 28, verse 11. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So the guards don't go to Pilate first because that was a death offense for a soldier to be sleeping on duty. They would usually put him in groups of four or 12 and certain guys would stay up and watch while the other ones slept and then vice versa. So 24-7, this guard was paying attention that nobody moved that stone with the Roman seal on it to take away the body. So, uh, of course, the angel comes, the guards are terrified, they've never seen anything like this, and they flee. They don't go to, to Pontius Pilate, they go to the religious leaders. And, and that's very shrewd of them to say, hey guys, listen, we all have something at stake here. We want to stay alive, and you want to make sure that this doesn't get out in the wrong way. So they come up with this plan. And of course, everyone's happy, and even today, it's still parroted. But if you know anything about Roman affairs, if the disciples really did, first of all, these guys were fearful to begin with. I can't picture them going up against a bunch of Roman soldiers and winning. Um, that there's so many problems with this story, it's ridiculous. If that was the case and there was a, a battle, the Roman governments would have put out death warrants for these guys, hunted them down person by person, and executed them, thereby snuffing out Christianity, if that were possible. So that's a ridiculous story, but it, it, it kind of helped everybody here. But this is what's tragic in all this, is that seeing something, seeing a miracle, seeing God work, and still being stubborn. Now, you know that there may be loved ones in your life that see things. And maybe, listen, we don't change as quickly as we should, uh, but there is some glimmer of God doing something. They see answered prayer. Look at all the answered prayer in, in this fellowship alone. And they still want to take the opposite side of what God is doing. You need to pray for those folks, because there's that willful stubbornness that they don't want to see. They see it, like the Greek says, but they don't perceive it. They don't take it in. They don't investigate it. So that's, that's um, troublesome, of course. Let's go back to John 20, if, you, if we could. John 20. Starting with verse 19. It says, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, or the Jewish leadership, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. Now when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It's interesting that one of the first things Jesus does is show him, show them the wounds of when he was crucified. Look guys, it's me. Here, see, it's, it's still there. In his resurrected form, he still bears the marks of the cross. And that's how much he loves you and I. Amazing. 
So verse 21, when Jesus said to them, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Then the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So even though these were guys that he walked with for some three, three and a half years, his buddies, his companions, his comrades, and they all in unison said, hey, we saw it, we put our fingers, and he goes, yeah, but I'm not going to believe it until I get to do something like that. And after eight days, his disciples were again again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now the Greek uh, rendering of this, and I'm going to give you a short Greek lesson, Because if you have, maybe the Jehovah Witnesses come to your house on Saturday, they'll argue with you about the deity of Christ. And they'll take this scripture, even though Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God, they will tell you, well, what Thomas probably said to Jesus was, my Lord, and looked up and said, my God. It doesn't work that way. The Greek uh, sentence structure, he says, ha koriasmu kai ha theosmu. Now, sounds Greek to me, right? (laughs) But there's a phrase, and there's a chi right in the middle, K-A-I, which means and. And then on both sides of it is my Lord, koriasmu, and my God, theosmu. Also is the definite article ha that goes in front of each part of that uh, phrase on each side of the chi. In Greek grammatical structure, the chi becomes an and, or excuse me, an equal sign. It becomes an equivalent when you put the definite article on both sides. So what he was saying was, you're the same person. You are my Lord, and you are my God. doesn't mean you have to be a Greek scholar to understand this, but it does help bring out things that we might not normally have seen. If you know your Greek grammatical structure, you know that Thomas was calling him God, period. Right? But blessed are those that have not seen and still have believed. Blessed are those like us, that 2,000 years later that have scrutinized the Bible have done a thorough investigation, and we don't fight the evidence of what's being revealed to us. I did that as a, God was working on me. You know, I wasn't a believer, and I would keep running into these Christian men who were really powerful. I mean, they just let me have it, and they, they, you know, I was like, wow. And I would just try to argue it away because I wasn't ready yet. But eventually the Lord got a hold of me, and here I am. (laughs) It's a good thing. But one day, we will see him as he is. We will get the benefits of Thomas and much more. I want to read 1 Corinthians 2.9. Again, it's one verse. 1 Corinthians 2.9. The Apostle Paul says, it, as it is written, and he goes, quotes back to Isaiah, he says it again, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And that's a promise. So don't be upset that you missed what Thomas got to see because we're going to see that and much more. And I believe, too, that in our fallen state that the 
organ of the eye and the hearing process and the, the, even the touch and the nerve endings on the edges of the skin, uh, I believe that, well, I, I'm sure based on the scripture that God in his purest form, we would not be able to experience him. We don't have the equipment. Isn't that amazing? We don't even have the equipment in the eyes. When something supernatural would come to the believers at the time, they would have to be in a form that the, these organs and their brain could discern. They couldn't see it in its glorified form. Pretty powerful, isn't it? But there will be a day where we will have the equipment, we'll be given the equipment, and it'll be like, you know, talk about a feeling of um, scintillating excitement, and it's just going to be there. Now, I'll tell you this. Again, let's go back to the whole Thomas thing. Uh, so he sees and he believes. Now, we don't need... What Jesus says is we don't need to necessarily see him now to believe him. If Jesus was to appear right now in his resurrected form right here, I wouldn't say, wow, Jesus, I'm so glad you came because seven years as a pastor, I was starting to not really believe and I was going to tell them eventually. But the fact that you're here really makes me understand that you are real. If I saw that, I would just say, what's well, a realization of what I've always known? You see, it's that faith that drives us. We live by faith and not by sight. Verse 16, going back to Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain, which Jesus had appointed for them. He told them this before he was crucified. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, understand when we look at the word disciples, I believe it's Methodes, uh, there were apostles that had a specific office, but disciples, remember, he sent out two by two. He sent out the 70. Uh, there, was, there could have been many hundreds of disciples, of followers, that didn't have the office of apostle. So it is a different word, and it is a different understanding. So when we look at this, um, it could have been those that start hearing, Jesus is resurrected, and they come out of the villages and say, wow, really? Well, I need to see this for myself, like Thomas. So don't let this stuff confuse you, because there were probably hundreds, or if not more. But what happens is, and I'll just, I'm not going to read the scripture, but in John 21, uh, Jesus is in Galilee. The disciples are fishing again, and customary Jesus style. He asked them if they had any food, and they were trying to catch some fish, and he said, take the net, put it on the other side of the boat, and all of a sudden, the net, just like in the beginning, they couldn't hold the bounty of fish. And they're like, it's the Lord, and Peter plunges into the sea, and he's, he doesn't want to wait for the boat to get back. He just starts swimming back to shore to see Jesus must have been a very, very exciting time. And I'm going to talk to you in a few minutes about why all this stuff needed to happen, his post-resurrection ministry. Verse 18, Matthew 28. Then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Always. That's a promise. Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. The Apostle Paul repeats that, and again, he requotes from the Old Testament, and we'll see that in Hebrews. Now, I'm going to look at four points here that are instructive. Number one, he says, make disciples. He says, make apprentices. Mentor people, get involved, pour into other people's lives. He doesn't say to make converts. Now, we've, in 2,000 years, there's been some subtle changes. Christianity is very interested in making converts. What we want to do is we have, want to have big events, 
and preach big messages, have the media there, have the light shows, have all that stuff, and get a bunch of people saved. It's become about numbers. I submit to you that that is easier than discipling. Because when you disciple, you put time into others. You take phone calls at inconvenient hours. You meet with people that maybe you put something off on your schedule because somebody is struggling. That's what happens when you disciple. Converts is easy. Boom, you do it. They have no access to you afterwards. It's God's problem. I just, you know, it's, there's been a lot of studies on these big events, and they found that the, those that um, actually from these big events and all these people come up, there's only like it's in the single-digit percentage of those who are really even walking anymore. And I'll tell you, somebody very close to me, and I know a few, um, went to a, a big crusade many years ago, and she had nobody to show her the way afterwards. So she went back into the world. And it was only until decades later that she made a real profession of faith and got discipled. So, um, interesting. But today, Christians are looking, and I can say this, it's the genre of Christian glamour. They're looking at the big, at the big light shows. They're looking at the big numbers. Um, they're looking at trying to make Christianity like a rock concert. Because the world has it. So we want to do the same thing in the church so we can attract people. Well, the, words, the word of God is not attractive enough. Shallow Christians are looking for this type of glamour Christianity. Um, appearances, but nothing behind it. Big experiences. Now, I'll tell you something else, and there's some Calvaries that are doing this too. Uh, we, can, we can spread it around here. There's this, uh, because of technology, so let's say there's a pastor of a, a very successful church, and he buys another piece of property, makes another church. And then what he does is he... Uh, through, through cable feed, he feeds his image, there's a camera taking his image, and he pipes it through to the satellite church. So everyone sits there and watches a screen. That's not a church. There's no feedback, there's no interaction. Hey, it's great that we have technology, but that's ridiculous. That might have worked for Max Headroom with Pepsi, but it doesn't work for the church. <laughs> ah. <laughs> How many of you remember Max Headroom, the Pepsi commercial? All right, you know, virtual pastor. We need to get back to the basis. We need to get back to discipleship, the pattern that Jesus laid out. The second thing is uh, he teaches them, he said, teaching them to observe what I've commanded. Now, pulpits are, are forfeiting God's word for current events, for um, you know, uh, politics, for things of that nature, but we need to get back to the word. In John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll follow my word. So if your church is not teaching you the word, how do you know if you even love Jesus or not? Because you don't know enough of his word to know what his word says and if you're obeying it, right? It just makes common sense. The third point, in Luke 24, 47, uh, Luke adds that he also says, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. Now, how often do we hear that? Especially if a Christian leader goes on TV, very rarely do they want to talk about sin. Very rarely. A lot of them are writing books now saying that hell doesn't even exist. So if hell doesn't exist, then we don't have to worry about the sin issue. Uh, some, some are saying that, well, sin is just a self-esteem issue. I don't know what Bible they're reading. So this is what's going on in the world. Repentance is very important. We sin and we need to repent. We fall down. We need to ask the Lord for forgiveness. He's already died for our sins, but don't ignore it. You see? It's funny because um, I end up sometimes offending people from the pulpit and more people keep coming. But the thing is, and you, you scratch your head, but the thing is that, that seekers are really looking for authenticity. 
If you're looking for authenticity, you want to hear what the word says, whether it's good for you or whether it, it's, it hurts a little bit. The fourth point, he says, go, and I command you. These aren't suggestions. <laughs> They're commands. I want to read to you um, from another pastor's lips, a man that I respect, Warren Wearsby, in his understanding of this portion of scripture. And he says this, and I'm going to quote him. He says, in many respects, we have departed from this pattern or the pattern that Christ set forth. In most churches, the congregation pays the pastor to preach, win the lost, and build up the saved, while the church members function as cheerleaders, if they are enthusiastic, or spectators. The converts are one, baptized and given the right hand of fellowship, then they join the other spectators. How much faster our churches would grow and how much stronger and happier our church members would be if each one were discipling another believer. The only way a local church can be fruitful and multiply instead of growing by additions is with a systematic discipleship program. This is the responsibility of every believer, he stresses, and not just a small group that have been called to go. I tell you what, I'm already formulating the, and I do discipleship on my own. Uh, my wife does, my leaders do. Um, if those come to me and want to be discipled, I don't turn anybody away. We're actually going to uh, have a class in 2012, probably around the summertime, uh, for discipleship training. So that's what I'm really excited about. But discipleship, listen, Christianity is not a spectator sport. We're not armchair believers, right? We need to disciple. And we have to ask ourselves, is anyone discipling me? Am I open to discipleship? Am I discipling anyone? Have I been a Christian 10, 15, 20 years and I'm still not discipling anyone? Okay, well, put some of your personal things aside and your recreation and your vacations and all that stuff and consider praying to the Lord and asking him, put someone in my life that I could disciple. I tell you what, the rewards, I can't even explain them. It's, it's something money can't buy because they're spiritual rewards. Okay, the Great Commission, very simple. We're commanded to love. But witnessing, people are speaking about techniques of witnessing and, and how to witness, and here's the deal. We're just giving a love gift to somebody else. The Bible says, A, we're commanded to love our God first. In John's gospel, he tells us that especially believers should be loving each other, and also we should be loving the unsaved world and trying to win the lost. Now, let me just go through a few of these events before we uh, wrap it up. Little trip down post-resurrection memory lane here, and somewhat in order, Jesus appears to the women first. He ends up on the road to Emmaus, uh, ministering to two of the disciples. He appears to the apostles while fishing in Galilee. He appears to the apostles without Thomas. He appears to the apostles with Thomas. He appears to others outside the 11, and 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that at one point, Jesus appeared to over 500 at once. And I'm getting somewhere with this. Um, he appears to many during his 40-day post-resurrection ministry. And it appears one of his last personal appearances was to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Now, why was all this necessary? Because he had to convince his followers when he was resurrected that he had the power over life and death. Why? because brutal persecution was coming, if you read your history books, even secular history, that the world had never seen in the Roman Empire. These, they were gonna to be tortured, torn limb from limb, they had new and exciting ways to how to torture an individual, 
and there was no Geneva Convention or a code of conduct. They just did whatever they pleased to the believers, separated families and such. And if the believers were not assured of eternal life, then it would have, Christianity would have just been done. Do a little study in the Roman era, how many splinter uh, religious groups came up and then when they were persecuted, where they disappeared. Christianity just got stronger. It's been said that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The more those were being martyred, the more the church grew. This was a spiritual thing. It wasn't a work of man. Before we go to prayer, I want to take a look at what this means to us today. Because isn't that the bottom line? You know, we read this. This happened in, you know, the Holy Land. It happened 2,000 years ago. Before we leave this building, we want to know what's the bottom line. How does this affect me today? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Christ not only died for our sins, that should give us encouragement. He was resurrected. He gave us the Holy Spirit, and he makes intercession for us right now at the right hand of the Father because he had the power over life and death, and he lives the victorious resurrected life, and he wants us to live the same. And I just want to make sure that you understand that that is available to you, no matter who you are, what your situation is, the power to live the victorious, resurrected life. Some think that, well, I just want to, you know, see the Lord and, and, you know, either the rapture or whenever he takes me and everything will be great then. It can be great here as well. And I think sometimes believers miss that. We keep looking to the rapture or the afterlife and, and to, to escape. But the truth is, he gave us abundant life right? in the afterlife and also here. We can have joy something that supersedes any earthly emotion, okay? Glamorous Christianity is a facade. When you go through the dark times, it won't last. It's not going to carry you. It's got to be something deeper than that, something that permeates your whole being. Now, just I'm going to share briefly. Um, I don't want to bore you to tears with my issues, but, you know, I come up here every Sunday. I'm very upbeat. Ask my wife. I'm the same way at home. Uh, I get up every morning, and I'm excited that I have another day of life, and I want to see what the Lord's going to do. So this is, this is me, okay? However, if you think that I have no challenges in my life, you are sadly mistaken. Some people have a tendency to look at the, the pulpit and see what's going on, and they say, wow, I, you know, I couldn't attain that. Yeah, you can. Twenty years ago, I was diagnosed with migraine headaches, and they get so bad that if it goes full term, it affects my stomach, it affects my eyesight, and if it's, it's uncontrollable, I'm in bed. I'm done. I can't do anything. 20 years later, I get them almost every day. I've tried everything. And I actually have to cycle three different medications so that my body doesn't get used to it and they're not effective anymore. Sometimes I have to take these disgusting pills when it comes on fast and chew them like candy and swallow them with water so the stuff gets in my bloodstream quicker. But you know what? I still choose to live the victorious resurrected life. Right? Do you think that there's no challenges in the deprosimo household? Come stay with us for a few days. You'll see. But it's a choice that we make. I choose not to live in defeat because I know that God has a plan for me. I've understood the fact that even if things are really bad, I don't say, Lord, why'd you do this to me? I say, Lord, carry me through this because I'm struggling right now. I tell you what, you can't run a church this size and not rely on the Lord and not desire the Holy Spirit to carry you and lift you up. When people say to me, how do you do it? I don't say because I'm wonderful. I say because the Lord is in it. He's at the center of it. He has to be. Otherwise, I might as well quit this because it isn't going to work. So I just want to encourage you that on a little of a personal nature, 
It's a choice to commit to him. And there's no other way that we're going to have the victorious, resurrected life unless we start with commitment. See, a lot of believers try to do it their own way. They try to use the world's methods. And then they say, well, it didn't work, and they throw up their hands. God is very clear in Jeremiah 29. We have to seek him, not just seek him, but we seek him with a whole heart, with all of our being. So, if anyone came to me, I would be more than happy to sit with them and, and, and spell it out, what the Bible says. I, I, want all, I want everyone here to have victory. Jesus lived a victorious, resurrected life, and so can we. But it must start with a desire for him alone. And that can only come from you. Let's pray.